Welcome to Take Command, a Dale Carnegie podcast, the show where we seek to uncover what leadership means in today's world. I'm Joe Hart, CEO of Dale Carnegie, and we will be talking to diverse leaders with stories to tell across various industries to help unlock your potential for success. We will be sharing real life insights into leadership, which in turn can help spark the next level of your growth as a leader. Today's guest lends insight to the importance of connectivity with technology, our teams, and with their own style as leaders. With a background rooted in accountancy and management, he touts a methodical approach to leadership that focuses on team building, communication, and authenticity. His insight is honed from executive and senior leader experiences with companies like O2, Bank of Paris, and Waste Management International. Please join us in welcoming the CEO of Verizon Consumer Group, Ronan Dunn. Ronan, so good to see you. Thank you so much for being on the Dale Carnegie Take Command podcast. It's so good to be here. Thank you for the invitation. I'm excited to talk with you and really to learn from you. You and I had a chance to be on a panel together. It was the Transformative CEO Summit, Robert Reese's CEO Forum. You are the CEO of the Verizon Consumer Group. You were the president of Verizon Wireless, CEO of Telefonica UK. You are today one of the leaders in driving the 5G revolution, also a CPA by background. A lot that I know that I and we can learn from you. Talk a little bit about your journey to this point. If I start at the beginning, I born and raised in Dublin, in Ireland, thus the funny accent. And... Um, trained as what we call a chartered accountant, but CPA. And that was really my entry into the business world. One of the things we'll probably touch on later is that characterizes me as I'm a curious kid and I'm fascinated by how things work. And I was incredibly fascinated by how the city of London worked, how financial institutions, banking, the markets, etc. So as soon as I qualified, I moved to London, spent eight years in banking, kind of learned my trade there as it were to understand more of the mechanics of how the economy works and then moved into the corporate side of things. And the thing that I've always been interested in is the opportunity to make things happen. And my experience in banking led me to know more of the tools that were required. But if I may say banking helps other people to do things. And I quickly realized I wanted to be on the other side and actually follow through with the ideas and the business cases, et cetera. And I worked in logistics for a while in the finance side and was very lucky to work in a very dynamic organization that was doing M&A. We bought things, we sold things, we raised money on the financial market. So I got a very, very intensive learning over four or five years about actually putting into practice some of the things I'd observed when I was a banker. And happenstance led me to telecoms back in 2001, where my boss in my logistics business got a job to be the founding CFO of a new telecommunications company called O2, which was created by taking all of the mobile assets of British Telecom putting them into a new entity. And having worked with this gentleman beforehand, he asked me if I'd like to come and help him set up in O2. So it wasn't so much that I picked the industry, I just found myself in there. And I have to say, hugely, hugely lucky and fortuitous move because telecoms and particularly mobile telecoms is probably right in the crosshairs of the cutting edge of almost everything transformative that happens in our economy and society. 
And it's pretty incredible that you did make that decision and you went into this field. And of course, that telecom field just has exploded. Talk about the decision that you made because you'd started on one path, you had a CPA, banking, logistics. What was the decision like for you to make that? Was it a high risk choice for you? Were you afraid at all about making that decision? What went into that for you? It's a great question, Joe. And it's actually one of the most significant experiences that I've had, which was I largely, like many CPAs, had defined what I thought was my career journey and potential around bigger and perhaps more complex finance roles. And I was the finance director of Telefonica UK and working diligently there with the aspiration to maybe ultimately be the group CFO. And my then CEO and his boss, the chairman, identified in me before I did the fact that I was probably growing out of the perimeter of my job. And so they gave me some additional responsibilities, procurement, legal and regulation, a few other things. And initially I thought, you know what, I'm the fool here because I just work harder and they just give me more work. And so my boss sat me down one day and said, look, what we actually see in you is the potential to be a very good general manager. And what we're doing is giving you the opportunity to test and learn. And very quickly after that, I became the succession candidate and took over as the CEO. What was really telling there was, Joe, I didn't see it. I really didn't see it because I, to some extent, had been conditioned by the expectation of what does a finance guy do? Just take another bigger finance job. Now that I'm on the other side of the fence, sort of gamekeeper turned poacher, if I may describe, what I realize is that certainly across Europe, a little less common in the US is many of the biggest businesses in Europe are run by people who have a finance background. So I was very lucky that somebody else saw that in me, perhaps before I realized it. Well, it's also interesting, though, you were open to it. You did embrace it. I think a lot of times people don't realize that, right? So someone sees something and someone saw something in you, but you did keep moving forward and you did embrace it. And once you found out what was behind the rationale, it all made sense. Indeed. And anyone who knows me knows I'm absolutely a huge sports fan. And if I can quote a Gary Player quote, which is, you know, the more I practice, the luckier I get. I've always believed in putting yourself in situations for opportunity to happen and knock. But I chose having established myself as a CEO in Europe to come to the US and run Verizon Wireless back in 2016. Some people thought that was a crazy big risk. I just saw it as a fascinating opportunity. And so I think that idea of being open to opportunity is really important. The other thing, Joe, which was a very real experience for me was about three months after I took over as CEO, I would say objectively, I was struggling in the job. And I sat in my office one day and I had as close to a spiritual moment as I've had in my business career. And what dawned on me was that I had stopped doing in the previous three months exactly what had made me successful for the previous 25 years. I thought that because I was the CEO, that none of what I'd done previously as a finance guy or whatever else was relevant because this was a different job. And yet what I realized, of course, was that I had 25 years of hugely relevant experience that made me perfectly placed to do the job as long as I did it the way 
I had learned to behave, to operate and to lead. And so not only was that an insight about readiness that gave me confidence, but it was also an insight that formed my very strong belief around authentic leadership and that you really have to be yourself to be successful in whatever role you play. So how do you think that insight came about? I mean, did that just kind of hit you? Was it an epiphany? Was it someone who's shared something with you? That's a rich insight probably for all of us. Yeah, to some extent it was that epiphany moment, but I'm a thoughtful person and I tend to think around things. I describe it as establishing a fact pack I'm a logic sort of person, which maybe I think most CPAs probably get credit for being logical sort of people. So what I like to do is frame the facts. And and one of my big insights in my lessons of leadership, which we may talk about later, is this idea of working out what question it is you're trying to answer. And that brought me to a point where I just tried to analyze what is it that I'm doing that isn't working in this new role? And it dawned on me, you're not being yourself. And as soon as I identified that, then I was able to go back and calibrate, well, all of your experience is actually relevant. You may be taking a different role, but you've been in the business, you understand how markets work, et cetera. You're just playing a slightly different role, but you've sat in every one of those meetings where people have played those different roles. So it was that willingness to recognize that the thing I wasn't doing was being myself that allowed me to then work back through the logic and understand what it is that would make me successful as a CEO. You know, Ronan, it strikes me that in hearing what you're just saying, that it goes back to one of the very first things that you said, which is that you're curious. So you found yourself three months into this role, things weren't working the way you thought that they would. You were curious. Talk about the importance of curiosity for leaders. How important is it for leaders to be curious for you? Is it something you've always had? Is it something you've developed? Where does that come from? I've described myself as a 15-year-old curious kid for over 40 years. So it's definitely something that I've always been aware of. For me, curiosity is so highly correlated to growth. Because when you stop being curious, you stop learning. When you stop learning, you stop growing. So curiosity for me is driven not by an overarching desire to always grow and learn, but a fascination. I'm a curious kid. I'm a fascinated kid. I want to learn about new things. And as soon as I do, then some of the other attributes of my intellect and other then apply themselves to the newly garnered facts, to the new situation. And so one of the things, Joe, that I talk a lot about is this idea of leadership through storytelling and particularly the creation of context. And context is really about bringing those facts, bringing the context together in a way that adds texture to what are otherwise bland situations or plain situations. So it's almost like seeing things in three dimensions when everybody else is seeing it in two. And so when I look to recruit, for example, I look for attitude and curiosity. I think you can teach or learn almost everything else and coach it, but if you don't have attitude and you don't have curiosity, you'll come up short. And I know from having been involved with sport all my life, that great coaches will tell you, give me young sports talent that has curiosity and attitude, and I'll help to build them into great sports people. So Ron, how do you assess attitude and curiosity? If you're interviewing someone who's looking to work with you, what are you looking for in them? How do you assess that? So I think it's this idea of discovery. 
you know, sometimes when you go into an interview situation or into a meeting situation, people are playing by what seems like a preformed template. And they're trying to make sure that they don't go outside the lines. What I'm actually looking for the people who are actually opening things up, discovery, open questions, open inquiries, the people who maybe not tangents, but people who try to develop a piece of the equation that may not have been the central hypothesis. That very framing is what creates the space in which people open themselves up to other answers, other solutions. Attitude for me is very often evidenced by what people have done. And I don't mean necessarily in a business sense. I remember very early in my career working with a law firm in London where they told me that they didn't take firsts from university. They actually took people with a second-class degree and who had spent time out. Why? Because they saw that as a proxy for attitude and curiosity, that they weren't just willing to learn inside the parameters of the academic curriculum, but that they had identified that they wanted to add life experience and other things into that framing. And so they had a very specific strategy about recruitment that said, give me the person who went off and went to the Himalayas because they weren't sure what they wanted to do in the career. Because that curiosity, that insight, that other attitude is exactly what I want to target in my talent acquisition. It also goes to what you said about context, because that person who's had those broad life experience is going to have greater context, greater understanding, greater diversity of thought than maybe someone who has been a little bit more linear, so to speak. Very much. And certainly in a role like mine, and partly because of my geographic experience, you know, one of the things I identify very clearly is the opportunity to bring the outside in. And it should happen at every level, but the more experience you have and perhaps the more diverse your experience, the greater the opportunity. Because adding that extra sunlight in can change the picture inside the frame of a business context which everybody believes they know and understand fully. And then you bring the light in. I'll give you a five-second example. Sure. I had a the team do a you know SWOT analysis, strengths, weakness, opportunity, threat, on a major US corporate that played in our space. And they presented it to me in the first 30 days that I was in the business. And I couldn't fault what was presented, but I could fault what wasn't presented. So in one particular aspect of that huge brand name that everybody would know, it said their role in this particular space in our ecosystem, it happened to be around devices, is negligible. They've tried something, didn't work. They're not really a player. And I said, that same organization supplies more than 50% of all the smartphones that are bought in the German market every year. And the German market is an 82.5 million population market. Is that not relevant? And they hadn't thought about it because they were looking at the domestic US situation. And the point I made in that example was very often companies test other business and operating models in markets outside their home market to test what might or might not work and then bring it back to their core markets afterwards. So a great insight was actually check what's happening in the markets that we don't operate in to perhaps forewarn what might happen in due course. So a great example of bringing the outside in. Why? Not because I was clever or knew more about that company, but I'd operated in the German market and knew exactly who the players were. Well, what's also great about that story, and I know I've read about your six principles of leadership and your second principles around building high-performing teams. And as an example, it sounds like part of what you were trying to do is to get that team to think more broadly. 
What are some of the strategies you have for developing teams, for bringing out the best in other people? One of the things that's most important to me is ensuring that people can be the success they deserve to be. So it's really predicated on an understanding of what a leader should be and then how that should influence how you build great teams. So my view is that in leadership, it's less what you do and more what you make happen. So you need to create the context and environment for others to be successful. When that comes specifically to building teams, the number one rule is never have somebody in the team who is doing a job that you would be better at doing. That's a really high hurdle because most of us get promoted from out of the team to be the leader of the team at different times in our career. So that first thing is liberate yourself by making sure that the person who's in the team is better at doing that job than you would be. Seems obvious, but not often true. Second thing I would say is, and this goes back to another fundamental for me about the authentic leader is, the definition of a great team is that there's space for everybody to bring what's different about them, because that way that team is capable of delivering outcomes that no other equivalent team could achieve. And yes, that is, I need an engineer, I need a finance person, but it's also, I need somebody who operated in a different market. I need somebody who has different cultural context. I need somebody who has a different attitude to influencing, to decision-making. And so bringing that, all those elements together means that you also create the space for leadership to happen at every level of the organization. Because if you organize yourself around the problem or the situation at hand, rather than simply hierarchically, that means that, Joe, you can lead today because you have more relevant context and experience for the particular challenge, even though you're not the most senior person in the room, and I can lead tomorrow. Even the idea of establishing that principle massively liberates people to contribute in a way that's not constrained by old-fashioned traditional hierarchy of capital. We have this idea that human capital is delivered in a way that's completely hierarchical, just do what you're told, as opposed to social capital, which is forming around the issue, the situation, the opportunity, and creating outcomes by the way you form against that. And that for me was a huge insight early in my career that establishing those boundaries where teams could be liberated to work at their very, very best was how you got great outcomes. And it goes back to something you referenced earlier, Joe, as we talked, which is context. Because actually, if you deliver context in an organization, what you actually give is confidence to people to exercise their judgment. Once they know they have the same context as the senior leaders, people further down the organization know exactly what to do. Invariably, what slows them from exercising their judgment is the uncertainty of whether they have the same facts as the senior leaders have. So it's the classic, I understand the strategy, I understand my role in the strategy, I'm confident to make decisions because I'm the one closest to the customer or closest to the situation. So that idea of leadership cascading to every level of the organization can be massively empowered by improving context. 
I also love what you said about helping people have that confidence because as CEOs, we want people to take risk. We want to encourage innovation. We, want, we don't want to be directing everything. By the way, I think a great example of where you've done this and where I've seen this just in my experience through the pandemic with your company is how quickly you pivoted and your team pivoted during the pandemic. That would seem to be an example of the kind of thing you're talking about where what you were trying to build was tested. You want to talk a little bit about what your team did and how that all played out? So the first thing was we realized on day one of the pandemic that our situation was slightly different from everybody else's because like everybody else, we had to prioritize the health and well-being of our people, number one priority. But the prioritizing of our health and well-being had to be balanced with a recognition that every single one of our customers was even more dependent on the product and service we offered than they had been the day before. So how did we strike that balance? We did three things. The first thing was we realized that swift decision-making and addressing the uncertainties that were in our control would reduce the overall level of uncertainty, recognizing that in a pandemic, there are certain things that are out with your control. So we introduced a tool that we use for communications anyway called Up to Speed. We introduced it as a daily live broadcast hosted by the leadership. And not only did we make it available inside the organization, but we actually took it outside the company firewall so that people who were now suddenly working at home, their families, their spouses, partners could listen in and understand what the context for their newly sent home family member was. Our investors, our customers, our competitors could listen in. What we did by doing that was we gave people confidence to say, leadership has this. We made it clear we would do the right thing. We didn't furlough anybody. We made provision for childcare and all the other things. We said, look, we can't solve the pandemic, but we can solve how you're prepared to be able to respond to this unusual and unprecedented situation. The second thing we did was to say, we need to make sure that we show up for our customers while balancing health and well-being of our employees. And I had over 18 months, Joe, built a work for home program for our call center agents. So we had about 1,800 home-based agents, which had built as a team over about 18 months. In 17 days, I sent 17,000 people back to work by being able to enable them within their homes to be able to do valuable work in the call center environment. And so that created not just work for people, but again, focus and purpose. In our retail stores, we took two to three years of digital innovation that we had planned in our roadmap and we delivered it in 30 days so that we were able to reopen our stores with touchless retail so that we could keep people safe and at the same time, deliver the products and services that people considered essential at the same time. If I draw those threads together is reduce the level of uncertainty by addressing those things that are still in your control. We told our agents, don't worry, we'll continue to pay you even if you have to close your doors. So you don't have to worry about economic distress and financial distress, worry about how you get your people safe and well and get back into business. Second thing that we did was we gave people the opportunity to be active and purposeful in a way that they could also be part of the solution, not simply waiting for it to happen to them. And the third thing is we gave our customers confidence 
that the thing that might make the difference between them being furloughed or being able to work from home, great connectivity, we were going to deliver. That created a wave of both confidence internally inside the organization, but certainty that our corporate customers could rely on the fact that they could not furlough people, but send them home and make them productive. And that ripple effect is something we're very proud of. And we were recognized by Fortune and others as the company that actually had the most comprehensive response from a people, customer, and societal point of view. We told all our customers, don't worry if you have any difficulty with paying, we won't cut you off. We're there for you. We will look after you. And we joined with all of the other carriers to keep Americans connected at that most critical time. And thank you for the way that you approached it. And it strikes me in listening to this, and one of the things we talk about in Dale Carnegie's is the critical importance of strong relationships, individual relationship, corporate customer relationships, and so forth. But it really seems like your strategy was you're building relationships with your team, you were building relationships with your customer, you were demonstrating empathy throughout the entire thing, knowing that you had their back, so to speak. Talk a little bit about that. I mean, is that a conscious thought in your mind that we want to have empathy? Joe, you don't find your, if I may be so bold, your moral backbone in a moment like that. You find out whether you had one or whether you didn't. Verizon has an unshakable brand reputation of running to a crisis, of being there. We serve more of the first responders in the United States than anybody else. And I say that in the context of it's in our DNA to show up and run forward when other people run backwards. That's who we are. And that's what our customers expect of us, what our employees expect of us. So inside the organization, the default setting was not why not, it was how can. And so the whole organization was focused on, I know it's a problem, but how can we make it happen? How can we get the stores back open? How can we make sure we can get customers? We were making provisions so that we could go into hospitals, which had been temporarily set up in facilities and put in fast connectivity. How did we do it? We actually built connectivity in a milk crate and was able to hand it on the doorstep of a facility in circumstances where we couldn't cross the threshold for various reasons. Provide them with a cable that could be run through a window and the window closed again because it was crushable cable to create connectivity so that they could go on and do their critically important work. So that can-do attitude and sense of purpose of the organization, which, as I say, can't be generated overnight, just came to the fore brilliantly. It strikes me that it goes back to what you were saying earlier about the importance of attitude and curiosity, because when you have a culture where people are saying, in what ways can we, how do we, they're motivated, whereas other people, again, this comes down to individuals and individual mindsets, right? I mean, other people might have said, we can't do that. We have a policy against that. But when you hire people and you cultivate people around attitude, in what ways can we, curiosity and so forth, you receive the benefit of that philosophy in that crisis. We completely did. And what I'd love to tell you is that a few of us at the top were just so clever that we made all these decisions. We had people innovating in every single part of the organization coming to us and saying, I think we can solve this. I think we might be able to do that. We created an environment called Taxi, where we could actually have a tech who would stand on the street and actually have a video conference with somebody inside a building, but actually with the capability to look at technology and various other things so that they could be guided through an installation. We didn't come up with that. The team came up with that. So that idea of curiosity and attitude, but also driven to purpose, 
you know what? It doesn't count if it wasn't different because you were there. I'm sorry, that may sound very blunt, but it's a passionate belief of mine. We have all of us an obligation to make a difference in everything and anything that we do. And I think that's something that comes naturally inside our organization in an odd sort of a way, created a space for people to be at their brilliant best at a time of incredible crisis. And I couldn't be prouder of how the V team responded. It was quite exceptional. That's terrific. People sometimes have a perception of CEOs as constantly confident, never challenged and so forth. And you and I both know that as CEOs, we've there's ups and downs in life and so forth. When is a time, as you look back at your career, you'd say, this was a challenging time. And how did you work yourself through that? How do you maintain a positive mindset in the face of challenging times, whether it's around the COVID crisis or some other point in your career? Two parts, if I may, Joe, to the answer. The first is values and principles are really, really important because if you know when you get up every single day what direction is true north, it's a massively, massively helpful. And so I've been very lucky that from an early age, I had a very good sense of direction in that regard. And I think that's critically important because in moments of crisis, if your sat-nav is a little bit on the blink, and you get into a crisis, then you get lost very quickly. Whereas if your sat-nav is working strong, guess what? You'll find your way, even if it is off a back road. The more sophisticated articulation of that is the two most important insights, I think, for CEOs or true leaders is to realize that you don't have to know the answer to everything. And actually, it's very liberating the day you get appointed to be the boss to realize that the only questions people ask you are the questions they don't know the answer to themselves. And that's quite comforting because it's a bit scary sometimes being the boss. It's a lonely place, as you know. The adjunct to that, which I think is most important, is I realized very early, therefore, that the role of a leader in this situation is the management of uncertainty. And therefore, moments of high uncertainty are moments of incredible opportunity for you to make a difference. And I'm the calmest person in the room in the eye of a crisis because I know it's a moment of opportunity to help and make a difference. So whether that's different from others, I can't comment on. I wouldn't ever say that I look forward to a crisis, but in an odd sort of a way, I know I can make a contribution and a difference in a crisis. And is that confidence? I'm not sure it is. I think it's purpose, but purpose connected to tangible action that you can do something and make a difference. And I had a situation when I was the CEO of a carrier in the UK, and we lost the network to a catastrophic failure, which meant a third of our customers were disconnected from the network for about 19 hours. And the noise from the media was such that the only question they wanted to know the answer to was, when would I resign? They'd even got bored asking when the network would be back up. And I ended up sitting down with a comms director and talking about what does a leader do in this situation? And my comms director said to me, look, your customers need the answer to four questions. What happened? Why did it happen? How are you going to make sure it never happens again? And when you've solved it, how are you going to make it up to me? The difference between perhaps a comms director and a CEO was I then asked him to arrange a live broadcast with one of the main media organizations in the UK. And as we walked out, I told him, those are the right four questions. Only challenge is, I don't know the answer to any of them. 
But I went on live television 15 minutes later and I said to the interviewer who you know, asked me for my head on the plate, I said, if any of my customers are watching this broadcast, they would want me to be addressing these four questions. What happened? Why did it happen? How are you gonna make sure it doesn't happen again? And what will you do to make it up to me? That interview ended up by the interviewer saying, refreshingly honest, clear accountability from a CEO. I'll let you go so that you can get back to addressing those issues and helping your customers. That for me is the fortitude of knowing what is the role that you need to play. I held myself accountable, but I identified the uncertainties that were the major concern for my customers. As soon as they knew I was addressing those or trying to, they felt an alignment because that was exactly what I should be doing. And for me, that was a proof of everything you do for your customers pays off in a situation like that because they trust you to put it right. But also everything I've learned as a CEO was I needed to put myself in the position to acknowledge what were the questions that needed to be answered, even in truth, if I didn't know what the answer was. Well, it goes back to what you just said, which is that you're not going to have all the answers. And often we're going to need to get those answers from other people and activate other people. There's no shame in that. I see younger leaders struggle because they feel like if they acknowledge that they don't know something, that it's going to look poorly upon them. And the reality is there's no human on the planet who has every answer for every situation. We need to work together to get those answers. And Joe, one of my, in my lessons of leadership is exactly that, which is exercise judgment as to when to exercise your judgment. And it is exactly that entrapment of young leaders who believe they have to be decisive in moments of uncertainty to say yes or do, rather than say, we don't know. And therefore it is reasonable to either seek further insight or information or defer a decision until something clarifies. But they feel compelled to show the decisiveness and as a result, very often show their inexperience. Well, great insights, Ronan. I want to switch for a second. I know you're a huge sports fan. What sport and who do you like to root for? So my favorite sport of all is rugby. I keep trying to persuade my friends in the U.S. that if those American footballers were really as brave as they make out, they'd take the armor off and they'd go out and go mano a mano. It's a fabulous game. And I root for Leinster is my province back home in Ireland. Obviously, Ireland onto the international field. But I'm also, for my sins, I'm a soccer fan. I'm an Arsenal fan. And I have been since I was about seven, which is 50 years. One of the lucky happenstances of my career was I ended up being the sponsor of my childhood team that I supported. So I was privileged enough to be the Arsenal sponsor for a number of years at the height of their glory. It's the sort of boy's own story where the kid grows up and all of a sudden you get to be that person. So uh, I've had a love affair with sport all my life. That sounds like a tremendous amount of fun. I'm curious who, whether it's in sports or in business or in your personal life, who inspires you? Great question, one I've been asked a few times, not just because of recency, but I'll give you an example. The attitude of a Phil Mickelson last weekend to say, you know what, I have what it takes and get it done. Jack did it in 85 or 86, the same thing, was 47 years of age. I love my golf as well. Gary Player, who's, you know, 50 pounds and four inches shorter than any player who should win a major, yet he has 
11, I think, to his name. So the thing that inspires me is the people who are the unconventional winners, the unexpected, the whatever. I just think we have to be dreamers, honestly. I really am impressed by the people who've just gone that little bit further. Elon Musk is a great example. I may not be the biggest fan of some of the things, and I'm not a great believer necessarily in Bitcoin and some of these other things, but you have to admire the fact that he doesn't take no for an answer, that is willing to create new opportunities and then be very open and sharing all of the research that they've done on things like batteries and other things like that. So those are the sort of people who particularly inspire me. And I have to say, like a lot of people, I'm incredibly inspired now. I'm at the privilege of having one child, but my daughter inspires me. This generation, their ability to be so much more socially aware and responsible than we ever were and help to teach a generation of us who it's not because we didn't think about it, but we didn't understand it to be better people, better citizens, more inclusive, more collaborative than we ever could have been. I think we have an incredible generation of young people and we should be very proud of them and we should support them. And one of the charities that I'm most involved in is a thing called One Young World, which attempts to do exactly that, which is to provide support and recognition for the young people in our communities and societies who are truly making a difference, not waiting to be the next generation of leaders, but showing leadership at an early age that puts most of us to shame. Well, it is something that that generation really has taken a mantle of leadership in so many ways. You talk about purpose. It's a very purpose-driven generation. A lot of the people, even who are looking for positions within companies, are looking for a company that's going to have an impact. And they'll many times take mission or purpose over dollars to put their money where their mouth is, so to speak. That's absolutely right. I have always one of the explicit North Star objectives for my business unit to be the employer of choice in the United States, not just in our marketplace, but in the United States. And I'm proud to say that I have the most diverse leadership team of any telecoms organization in the world with a majority female and a majority people of color. That doesn't happen by accident, but it does create an environment in where people can say, actually, if you see it, you can be it. And that's what we all have to do. That's terrific, Ronan. Thank you so much. Do you have any final pieces of advice for our podcast audience? So the one thing I would say that if I wrap all of these other things together is this idea of curiosity that we talked about an attitude is ask the right questions. I see so many situations where organizations and situations are people who rush to action and end up executing what I describe as a ready, fire, aim strategy rather than ready, aim, fire Spending a little longer working out what question you're trying to answer will invariably make it easier to find the right answer. So my mom, bless her, who's 92, and I hope to see in a few weeks' time back in Ireland, describes it as the more hurry, the less speed. So if I can say to you, don't rush. You're young. You have a huge amount of time ahead of you. Ask a few extra questions, and maybe you'll come to even better answers. And enjoy yourself on the way. Take time to smell the roses. Well, terrific advice, terrific interview. Thank you so much, Ronan. It's great to be with you today. And I know the audience really appreciates it too. Joe, thank you so much for the invitation. I'm delighted to be here. I hope you enjoyed this edition of Take Command, a Dale Carnegie podcast. Check out our resources page at www.dalecarnegie.com for more research, insight, and tools that will support your success in taking command of your leadership potential. 
If you enjoyed this episode, please consider rating it and subscribing to us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. As always, thank you for listening, and we look forward to you joining us at the next episode of Take Command, a Dale Carnegie podcast.